Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Tuesday. And we are joined by newly published author Tim Miller. Uh, so, Tim, this is one of the first. I'm actually in an earlier time zone than you for the first time. Usually I'm in the Midwest and you are on the left coast. Uh, today I'm Mountain Time, Aspen, and you are in, where are you? I'm in New York. Bonus Tim Miller Tuesday. I'm going to be the caffeinated one today, Charlie. I'm ready. I've already been on I know, Morning Joe. I've been on New Day. I'm, I'm hopping. Okay, so let's just talk about, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the world. I want to talk about uh, what, you know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott had to say about uh, those migrants who, uh, who died so tragically. I mean, another, you know, sick moment. Also, obviously, uh, the January 6th committee is having this uh, unscheduled meeting with the surprise witness. Turns out to be Cassidy Hutchinson. And can't speculate too much about what she's going to say. But of course, the hype is great. Expectations are high. I don't know. My default setting is always to feel that they're probably going to be let down and disappointed. But maybe not. You just, you just don't know. But Tim, we have to talk about the publication of your book. First of all, congratulations on Pub Day. Thanks, Charlie. I, uh, you know, only woke up with night terrors, worried about typos and, you know, everybody hating me and whatnot uh, three or four times last night. So um, otherwise, I'm feeling very thrilled. A lot of work went into it. Okay, so one of the things that that this has been a, I would say, a chronic perennial (laughs) question that we ask on the ball, and people ask, like, okay, you know, at what point do you move on from asking what happened? How did so many people go on? What happened to the Republican Party and everything? Why didn't you guys see it? And the answer, I think, is because after all of these years, we still haven't figured it out, right? I mean, you asked the question of the book, why did normal people go along with the worst of Trumpism? But also, and here's here's our first F-bomb of the day, why in the fuck did the vast, vast, vast majority of seemingly normal, decent people whom I worked with go along with the most abnormal, indecent of men? And why hadn't I seen it coming? And all of us ask this question, not just on these podcasts or on television, we ask it to one another because we all have stories and we all ask ourselves, what did we miss? What did we get wrong? How did this go? What about these people that we knew? And so that's really the theme of at least the first half of your book, isn't it? You, you're your own. Yeah. Experience. Actually, it's uh, the theme of the whole book. It tormented me. I, and another, just really quick before I get to that, one another reason why we have yeah. to keep asking it is because it's not over. Right. Uh, and the book really could have been titled, Why Are We Still Doing It? And uh, whatever. If we sell enough, maybe that'll be the sequel. But um, uh, yeah, I, look, I... I I felt like the only way that I could write a book that that added anything to the discourse was was just was trying to understand what is beneath the layer of all these other books that have been like all this crazy shit happened and all, all these people are hypocrites and went along with it and you know we've known that that's been done to death but I I just right. I don't think that anybody has really done a great job of grappling with why uh, that that happened, and, and I think that's part of the reason why we keep talking about it. Um, you know, maybe there isn't a good answer to some of it, but but uh, you know, there are okay. coming. Well, exp- explain explain it to yeah. me. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, I'm reading the book, and you you come at it from a slightly different because you were you know embedded in the consultant wing of the yeah. party. I was more you know involved in sort of think tanks and media side, but the experience seems so familiar. Yeah. You know, that normal, 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 a little bit abnormal, a little bit of crazy. Okay, some, you know, Faustian bargains and then holy, right, gradually and then all at once. Yeah. So tell me your story. Explain that mentality. I mean, for me, I describe it, I think it's chapter four. It's called The Game. 
I think that there was an element of, of politics, of campaign politics, that the people that were attracted to it, particularly in my era, I think, uh, you know, we grew up with the West Wing, sort of horse race politics really was kicking. It's not as if this stuff didn't exist before, but, but it really was kind of reaching a fever pitch. And, and a lot of what I noticed when I went back to think about my own choices and when I talked to my former colleagues, a lot of us were really drawn to the sport of it. Uh, you know, we liked the winning. We liked the thrill and the rush. You know, we liked looking at the stats, like I looked at sports stats, and trying to figure out clever tactics for boosting our side. And, you know, I remember one of the very early conversations I had for the book, one of the first interviews I did, this guy who ended up not going on the record, but about half the book's interviews are on the record and some are on background. I, mm-hmm. I, I really just wanted honesty was the most important thing to me, um, rather than names. And, and he says to me, I've never voted for a Republican presidential candidate in my life. Never won. This person was Hmm. a high-level operative at the state level and at the federal level for famous politicians that you would have heard of. Never once voted for Obama, Obama, (laughs) I don't think Hillary, you know, whatever, Evan McMullen, and then Biden. And and it's like, this wasn't happening on the Democratic side of the aisle, okay? And uh, there's there's a game element to everything. There's an epox in all our houses about the D.C. culture, of course. But at the Republican level, I feel like in the operative class, many of us really signed up and we put on a team jersey and we were playing a sport and and we compartmentalized a lot of the bad stuff. And we said, look, this is part of winning. Yeah, this really goes to this question that we get asked all the time. Do people actually believe these things? And in many ways, you read your book, you realize that's sort of a category error because you're caught up in the game, you're caught up in the combat, and it's about killing the other guy, helping your guy, and do you really go through the process of, do I believe this? I mean, isn't it, it, it's like, it, it is a different mentality, yeah. right? At a certain point, it becomes irrelevant whether this person actually believes it or not. It's what they do, right? It's what they feel they have to do. Yeah. This is their life. This is their tribe. And you get, you get sucked up in the competition, right? I mean, you just, it, it's, a, it's a fight. Yeah, in some ways this is applicable to, I think people, hopefully this might resonate for people in the business world or working in big tech or working at a lawyer, right? Like, like you have a job to do and you get caught up in, I, I want to be the best at doing this job. And actually, you know, there becomes this perverse reverse incentive where bringing up what impact is this going to have on real voters is actually saying you don't get it, right? You get mocked for that inside this DC culture, right? And so I, you know, I brought up a time when I was at the RNC. I, I thought this was just a really, you know, it's a small example, but it's one representative of all these sorts of choices. RNC sends out these mailers to every old person in the country, you know, trying to get a little bit of their social security money. They, they come in the mail. And for some reason, I got the job of approving them. And these mailers are insane. They're conspiratorial. You know, the way they talk about the left and your fellow countrymen is, is just meant to stir up animus and hatred. The, the facts were, at best, you know, gray. And, and so I would mark it up with my red pen. And, and apparently whoever had the job before me didn't do that. And so, you know, I get called up to the chief of staff's office at the RNC and I meet with the fundraising team. And he's like, why are you, why are you, the fundraising team's pissed that you keep, you know, watering down their their letters and i was like well this stuff isn't true or this is bs and and he's like who cares right and he's like is it gonna be a problem for us is it gonna you know become a press story i was like probably not and he's like well that's all you have to worry about so just just stop doing it yeah. and so i stopped doing it right and, and so this is a small example right but if you just think about that culture should we really have been surprised with the benefit of hindsight that somebody like donald trump who's a performer who's shameless 
you know, who, who doesn't have any boundaries would have been able to come in and co-opt a culture as corrupt as that. I, I can make so much sense now in retrospect, you know, thinking about that. And this has not changed, right? Just look at the, we've written articles of the board. There's a hilarious uh, Bill Hooters article just last week about the emails that go out from Donald Trump. Um, I've written about mm-hmm. this, about how the NRCC is tricking people still. So I, I, obviously, none of this, it's worse now than it ever was before. But I think that that was an important thing for me to grapple with just how many of us didn't ever actually think about the real impact. And when on the rare occasion when conscience struck, you know, we got slapped down. Well, there's a confessional element to this book. You, you write, you know, America never would have gotten into this mess if it weren't for me and my friends. So, you know, did you build this? I mean, how, how, how much are you, Tim Miller, to blame? Now, by the way, parenthetically, I understand that how ironic it is that I'm asking <laughs> this. Uh, considering the role I played, I actually was at a dinner the other night and I was, you know, t- t- we were talking about various people who I had supported over the years. And the person who was there <laughs> turned to me and said, you know, if I did those things, I would not leave. Uh, I would not leave my room. I would stay in a dark, a darkened room all, all of the time, filled with shame, flagellating myself. This was my dinner time conversation. I said, well, welcome to my life. So, so I, keeping that in mind. So, Tim, what was your responsibility that you acknowledge in this book for this mess. By chapter nine, my editor was saying, I think it's about time for you to take off the hair shirt. You know, (laughs) we we, we got the point. You are hard on yourself. Yeah, well, because for good reason, I think. You know, look, it's not my fault that Donald Trump happened, right? I, I I don't think that. But yeah. the, the culture that I was a part of, like, you know, did I play a small role? Absolutely. I, I just don't think there's any other way to look at this. And, and the whole premise of the book is that there are always going to be bad people. There are always going to be bigots and sociopaths and people that don't have any conscience that try to take advantage of politics or, and to try to gain power, right? Like, this is a tale as old as time. But, but these people you know, the worst of the Trumps, the Bannons of the world, which we can get to in a second, they would have been impotent if it wasn't for those of us that participated, right? Like Donald Trump, like this never could have happened if it wasn't for all of us who knew better, who went along with it. Now, I obviously bailed way before many of my many of my other friends. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you look, if you look back, and I, I'll just get into it now, I tell the story of I, I used to deal with Bannon, like quite a bit, you know, we, I was amazed by this, by the way, you were, when, when I was reading the book, I was amazed by oh, that. Oh, yeah. Me, me, no, it's okay. We're like texting buddies. I, I, don't, I don't feel good yeah. about this. I, but, but I thought it was clever, right? Like, this was how I, and, and this is my mindset. And I think it's important to, to be fully honest clever. and hard on myself so I understand their yeah. mindset, which is my mindset was it's my job to win in politics. I'm a PR flag. This guy runs one of the most influential conservative outlets in America. And if he wants to meet with me, and if we have a little rapport, I think I, you know, I remember uh, Jen Senior, who was on this podcast the other week, said he's like mm-hmm. he's charming in person or whatever. That is true, I, you know, he is. And so, you know, we got along to a certain degree, and and I felt like I could use that right to to sully my enemies, you know, to if I was working for Jeb, I could pit, give something to Bannon to use to hit Marco or to hit Scott Walker or whatever. And um, and so I cultivated this this relationship. And, you know, what, what I came to realize, um, too late, obviously, um, is that, that what I thought was me being clever using him was actually just part of this slow co-option of the Bannon wing and the deplorables of, of the people who, like me, thought that we were whatever, the bumpers on the, on, the, on the bowling alley, the thought that we were kind of, you know, the responsible ones nudging things the right direction. And I got a text yesterday 
from, I, I can't say who, but from a far-right reporter that I haven't talked to in years who, who read, who saw an early copy of the book and read it. And, and he was like, he's like, it's unbelievable to me that these guys still don't get it and that you're the only one that's seeing this straight. And, and it's hilarious because I, I called these people bigots and extremists and, and hor- ruining the country, but they don't see themselves that way. And, and, but what they see clearly is that they have successfully co-opted Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and blah, 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 every other person. And, and, and all those guys think they're in charge, but they're not. The, the Breitbart readers are in charge. And, that's, and that is very and – it, and it frankly – was pretty clear by Sarah Palin, and this is why I put on the air shirt. It was pretty clear in 2008, and I think that everybody who went along with it between 2008 and 2015 holds a little bit of responsibility. I'm sure it goes back earlier. If you look at history, I'm sure we could do, you know, whatever, Goldwater, but I'm just looking at my personal experience. I saw this in 2008 with Palin. I did. I was working sure. on it, and I can, and I just I put it in a little box in my head, and, and that's the extent that I feel responsible. So while, while we're still on Bannon, you, you have a very interesting description of Bannon's insight that you focus on the commenters yeah. that I think that a lot of people in a political culture, in the media culture, you know, sort of roll their eyes, you know, the people who you know the comment sections, which would be, you know, the Star Wars bar scene of, of, of writing. Bannon had a different insight and it's really transformed right wing media and, 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 and politics. So could you, could you talk about that a little bit? What what how he turned everything on its head? Yeah. You know, I, I think there was always this kind of push and pull, right? Um, where the the big conservative media outlets, the wonks, the National Review types, you know, you always want to appeal to your audience to a certain degree. But there was this kind of feeling of, well, you know, we're up here on the pedestal, and and we know we're the deep thinkers, you know, and and we have the, these po- deep policy, you know, views, and and so you know, we'll throw these guys a bone yep. every now and then, but but we're going to kind of keep things on the rails and be responsible. And, you know, not just give in to whatever crazy conspiracy theory or whatever, you know, is the hot thing at the moment with the with the deplorables. Bannon said the opposite. Bannon was like, let's read the comments on the Breitbart page and see what our people are mad about. And if they're mad about it, we'll feed it to them and we'll exacerbate their anger, actually. And and we will, um, you know, follow them, you know, down the path. And here's the thing. What, what this, here's the scariest part about all this that led to January 6th. Bannon's centering the commenter strategy. You know, he ended up getting outflanked by the Newsmaxes of the world and the, and the OANs, right? Breitbart kind of went along with, to an extent, with all of the, the Stop the Steal stuff. But even, even Breitbart found some lines, you know, between, between November and January. Newsmax didn't. OAN didn't. You know, they all learned from the Bannon model and said, our, our commenters want to believe that Joe Biden is totally illegitimate and, and there's nothing there. And so then Bannon, now on his podcast, which goes to senior, ended up having to try to outflank them, right? Like Bannon ended up, that's how far this has gone, that, that Bannon ended so, up getting drug to the conspiratorial side by somebody that used his own insight against him. See, the more I thought about this, the more I think that this is central to understanding what's going on, that that the Republican, yes, the Republican Party has become a cult of personality, but it's not top down, is it? It's bottom up. And the id of the party is, of course, not National Review. It's not even Fox News. The id is out there, you know, in this grassroots, which is constantly being fed, you know, stronger and stronger meth to keep them angry to keep them you know in 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 grievance right yeah and so 
this is one of the things that has, you know, metastasized in the Republican Party. And so somebody like a Donald Trump or a Steve Bannon, they are looking at those comment sections to decide, you know, where as leaders they're going to go. Right. I mean, that old cliche, but I'm their leader. I have to follow that crowd. That is the essence of of the Republican Party and the right wing. And even Bannon, just quickly, even Bannon had to be humbled by this. Right. I mean, you know, even I'm kind of acknowledging there's some like level of credit, I guess, that a begrudging, hateful credit. But that, that, that they saw this when we did it and were able to take over the party. And obviously Bannon ended up in the White House and a lot of horrible people got rewarded for their bad decisions. But even at January 6th and the Stop the Steal, if you watch him now, Bannon doesn't believe any of this bullshit about the voting machines and, you know, all the MyPillow stuff. Like, he doesn't believe. And so he had to be kind of humbled and realized, I think, that there was a moment where he thought, I'm the puppet master. I'm in charge. And it's like, nope, no. His viewers. Because it's all the game. Yeah, it's all the game. It's all the game. It's all the game. Okay, so you talk about these other stomach-turning events that led to Trumpism, you know, you know, rated by this array of actors, and, and you name names. Yeah. And, and I want to walk through this. I want to walk through the, the categories that you describe, which are fascinating. And then the specific figures, you know, the Elise Stefanics and the Corey Lewandowskis and, and the Reince Priebuses. So let's talk about some of these categories you have. The, the LOL Nothing Matters Republicans who decided that if someone like Trump could win, then everything that everyone does in politics is meaningless. That's really part of the culture, too. Yeah. So just just to back up, I, I felt like once I turned from looking back to looking forward, I wanted to kind of give people right, some right. guideposts, right? Like in all of my interviews that I did, dozens of interviews with old colleagues, some on record, some on background, like what were the themes that kept coming up? And so, you know, I wanted to create like this little field guide. So, so for people to kind of understand, like, what are these people telling? What are the stories these people are telling themselves? And this LOL nothing matters is 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 the one that ties most directly back to the game, right? Which is, you know, like this is all ridiculous. Like this is all a fraud. Like Donald Trump, who's an idiot, got elected president. Like he didn't even have a real campaign. He won. Um, you know, all we can do now is just throw our hands up and enjoy the game. And I think that this is most aptly described, uh, unfortunately, by this character that uh, is an anonymous Twitter person named Comfortably Smug, who has a podcast mm-hmm. now with Mitch McConnell's top advisor, Josh Holmes. Um, of and course. Yeah, of, of course, right? This is anonymous <laughs> troll and Mitch McConnell's top <laughs> advisor yeah, yeah. teamed up for yeah, a podcast. Moral nihilists. The nihilists find themselves. But this guy, Smug, I knew him uh, because he had supported Jeb in the primary. And and um, so, you know, we used to DM on Twitter. And then, like me, he was so grossed out by Trump, he sucked it up and said, I'm going to be for Hillary in 2016. And then Donald Trump wins. And he realizes, well, if I'm going to keep this minor internet fame that I've gathered, I guess I'm just going to be a tongue-in-cheek Trumpist. Right? And so, and, and that has worked to his favor. And when you talk to... Republican consultants, like the guys who used to have my old job, the, the spokesperson, you know, at the NRSC or whatever, these guys all follow him and love him because it cre- it's, it's created this um, mental architecture for them where they can justify their own complicity because they all know what's bad. But if they, if they don't think about it as, well, every decision I make is a moral right or wrong, but if they only think about it as this is all a big game, this is all a troll. Right. LOL, nothing matters, so and they don't have to. Yeah, yeah right. then they don't. They don't have to actually do any reflection. And and, I, and this is an endemic attitude. Yeah, no, and and shockingly, it's kind of a sophisticated form of rationalization. Yeah. 
You know, you don't talk yourself into believing something false. You just convince yourself that, you know, the, the, the moral universe is a joke and you're just going to go along. So some of these other categories, the inert team players, uh, you know, people who just can't imagine doing anything other than being a loyal Republican. So you write the idea of being anything besides that is inconceivable. That's hard to overstate how many people are like, this is my world. These are my people. This is my livelihood. So if they go fucking crazy, I'm I'm on the train, right? I can't get off the train. It's going too fast. Yeah, and I have maybe close to the most sympathy for some of these people. I, not not total sympathy, but you know, especially if you know, people that I worked for, for example, that I talked to, I did interviews with. They they have kids in high school, right? College bills are coming up, and it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? Like besides this, I've been a Republican my whole life. All my friends are Republican operatives. I said, I have multiple friends who named their daughter Reagan. You know, like they're like, I have elephant tchotchkes in my house. What am I supposed to do? This, this insight was kind of what underscored the Arbat strategy was to try to convince people, say, hey, here's someone else like you who has the elephant tchotchkes and who loved Ronald Reagan. And, you right. know, can you do a video that, that, that tries to bring other people like you to the light? But you get so tied up in your identity, and especially if you're in politics, in the game, it's like, well, Tim, you know, I'd have these drinks with them. And they'd say, well, what am I supposed to do? I'd proceed to be like, well, I don't know. You could go do corporate PR. <laughs> you could. No. <laughs> I, I, I'd make a series of suggestions of other things they could do. And uh, you'd hem and haw. And, well, I, you know, I've got the, the, you know, college coming up. And, and so for some of them, I think there are real financial considerations. But for others, it's simply inertia. I think that's why inert was that key word. It's like, how do I imagine an identity that's different from myself? It becomes very hard. You know, you get comfortable. And this was, I think, true of even younger people who I had, who I had a lot less sympathy for. Okay. So I, I want to get to some of the specific characters in the book, including my, my old friend, Ryan Spreebus, who falls into the category you call the mixers, the little mixers. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. I, I love this category. I think it's because it's the saddest <laughs> one kind of, um, yeah, it's like people, people but, always but instantly recognize yeah, people always say about Washington. <laughs> well, it's all about power. It's all about access to power. And actually the truth is like, Eh, some people really want power. Most people, you know, it's a little more down market than that. They just want to be around the powerful. Right? They want to be in, you know, the line from Hamilton, the room where it happened. Uh, they want to be able to tell their friends about, oh, this thing that they saw behind the scenes or this conversation they had in the green room or whatever it is. Um, and and Reince is just emblematic of this um, character. And, and uh, I focus on one conversation we had which was in Miami after the Florida uh, presidential debate, where it was very clear that Trump was going to win Florida and beat Marco. And, and, at, and at, the, at which point it was very clear he was going to be the nominee. Um, and I, I saw him, I saw Ryan at a party and said to him, as a friend, like you have to quit. Uh, like, this is your moment. You know, you can, or you can wait till Trump officially gets the nomination and you can say, Hey, I want Trump to have the chance to pick his own team, you know, and sort of exit stage, right and maintain some dignity and not have to, you know, worry about all the unknown horrors to come. And he said to me, basically, uh, this exact quote, essentially, that in the room where it happens, we need to have a guy like me in the room. You know, I need to be there. And if things go too far, I'll say something. Well, we know what happened with them. Yeah. These conversations are, you know, causing some terrible flashbacks for, for me. All right. So there's a lot of other categories here, but I think one of the really fun parts of your book, I mean, look, I think the first half where you're confessional in describing it is incredibly valuable, but then you have these little portraits, these little vignettes 
of Elise Stefanik, Corey Lewandowski, Sean Spicer, Ryan Priebus. I have to tell you, Tim, I think I, I mentioned this when we talked about it the last time. As somebody who has wrestled with this question of like, how did this happen? Your book was really helpful to me, even though, you know, I've been talking about it and writing about it and thinking about it for years, because it, it, it does delve into this, this mentality. You know, I mean, you know, from the outside, it does appear, and I'm going to steal Jonah Goldberg's line again, you know, the invasion of the body snatchers, you know, people who are normal and reasonable, and you could have a rational conversation with, and then one day they wake up and you see them tweeting out some crazy batshit things, you know, or some, or some hacky partisan, you know, jibe that was written by seventh graders or something like that. And this, this helps me explain it. But you know, in terms of like the, the real mysteries of life, the trajectory of an Elise Stefanik is extraordinary. This is a very, very bright woman. This is somebody you work with at the RNC. Yeah. She was, you know, mentored by Paul Ryan, you know, from Harvard. I mean, any list of like, you know, future rising stars of the post-Trump Republican Party would have included Elise Stefanik. The Bulwark actually ran an article with the headline, we need more Elise Stefanik. <laughs> it's there. I No, we Who did. Did you know that? Remember that? Are we outing no, the No, 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 I wouldn't. No, I'm not going to do that. I just, no. I, <laughs> because, oh, look, look, I mean, you know, we've all made mistakes, yeah. but, and, and that wasn't a mistake, no. because then Elise Stefanik became the ultimate shapeshifter. You write, she made a conscious decision to go all in with her own personal Voldemort because she came to recognize that her popularity, fundraising, and ability to rise within the party would benefit. But you knew her, so yeah. explain her to me. With like one or two exceptions, I really tried to focus on people I knew because uh, it is it's hard enough to get inside someone else's head that you know. You know, you really mm -hmm. only know yourself. But but so strangers, I, I tried really hard to focus on people I knew. I knew at least we worked together on the autopsy at the RNC. And and when she and she wouldn't talk to me for this, she sent me a kind of a cheeky email about how she sees my Twitter feed, and so she's not gonna be responding. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay. well, um, uh, fair enough, I guess. Um, and 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 she was more than just kind of a regular Republican. Actually, I, I think this is really important to understand. In twenty, oh man, now I'm blanking. I think it was 2014 when she first ran. It was 2014. She ran a campaign that was like the model for what a Tim Miller would want as a Republican. Yeah. And she ran, right. pro, we need to deal with climate change, immigration reform. You know, we need to be more welcoming to immigrants, gay rights. You know, we need to be pro-gay. We need to be compassionate. I, you know, this was like, here's how we can make the Republican Party, you know, look more welcoming. You know, she was the hot ticket that year because she was running that campaign. Karl Rove and all the big name Republican donors were throwing in in her primary, where she was primarying some regular chamber of commerce, you know, Republican rich guy. And she wins that race. And somebody I talked to on her campaign said it was the most hopeful, optimistic moment they'd had in politics. Uh, you know, because they were like, God. this was finally a candidate for me, you know, for, for the center-right Republican type. And so for somebody like that to turn into how she is, and in order to defend that article, we need more Lee Stefanik's, this continued all the way through Trump being in, in the White House. I believe it was in 2018 was the first time she had tweeted his name. I went back and looked at her. She runs her Twitter herself. I went back and looked at it. Yeah. That's, what, that's what the Voldemort reference was. Like She would not dare speak his name during the campaign in 2016, well into his presidency. And so whenever I called her friends to say, what happened? Everybody, this is like the whole, what happened to Elise? What happened to Elise? Everybody's answer was, well, she's just doing what the voters want. She's just doing what the voters want. 
And what I discovered when I, when I, after more and more conversations is that that was just a comforting answer that people told themselves. It wasn't true. Sure. John Katko lived in the district right next door. It's not like the voters, you know, when you cross this imaginary district line in upstate New York are all of a sudden nicer or meaner or more MAGA or whatever. Her and John Katko had the same region, representing New York. And John, plenty of complaints about him, not perfect, but, you know, voted to impeach Donald Trump. And, you know, it didn't go into the conspiracy theories. Elise wasn't reflecting her voters. What Elise was doing was deciding how, how to gain power. And, and this is where I think she is the prime example of this category of person where actual power, like the Reince thing was being around power, actual power is what drives her. And, uh, and in the original book draft, I had a couple other examples of that. And uh, the editor said, basically, the Elise thing is just so crazy and dramatic that like, that all the other examples just pale in comparison to her. So well, let's, just, let's just stick with Elise. She could be the vice presidential nominee. I mean, I think that she's maybe the favorite if it's Trump and if not the favorite, certainly in the top two or three. Yeah. Or speaker. But going back to this question of what do people actually believe or not? Look, this is a very, very bright person who understands this. We're not we're not talking about, you know, Sean Hannity level of stupidity or something like that or 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 even a Corey Lewandowski. I mean, you know, by the way, your description of Corey Lewandowski is a shriveled skin flute looking (laughs) man with no appreciable skills outside of recognizing the popularity of unrestrained Trumpism. Corey, yes, it's brilliant. But I mean, Corey is Corey. I mean, you know, yeah. it's whatever. So, but at least Stefani knows better. She had a future beyond Congress if she wanted it, right? But she chose this path. It's not whether she believes or not, but do you think she has like pangs of conscience about dumbing herself down this way? Or no? Or is it the game? I don't think no. so. I look, I, I think that. She got what she wanted. I think this she is the key it's insight working. into her yeah. is she wanted power. And, and I do think that, you know, all things being equal, would she have loved to be the VP candidate for Paul Ryan, you know, in 2036, running on a yeah. pro-immigrant, old school Republican platform? Sure. I think that she would much rather have that. But I don't, I don't see any evidence that she has doubts or second thoughts or, you know, deep pangs of conscience. I think that she's decided this is what she needs to do to get what she wants. And she has left... And the stories I tell of the of the close friends and people that really worked for her, and the way that she's treated them, I, I don't I don't see any evidence that this is a person that had doubt. Okay, so Sean Spicer, um, yeah. harsh. You're harsh on Sean Spicer. Okay. <laughs> is, is that fair? I'm, I'm, not, I'm nice to a couple people, hard. you know. So, uh, but yeah, I'm not. Yeah, 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 yeah. but no. So Sean Spicer, you know, I remember in 2017 when I first started doing a lot of this this stuff, but the number of people who were like, okay, so Sean Spicer is embarrassing. But, you know, I, I know him. He was a good guy at the RNC. You know, he, they were friendly with him. And I felt it was an advantage that I didn't know Sean Spicer. I didn't have to pretend to like him or anything. Yeah. So I was I was intrigued by the fact that you you were never buying. I mean, Sean Spicer's really the pathetic character that you thought he is. He didn't just play this pathetic toady on television. This is who he was, right? I mean, at least that's what it might take away. Oh, yeah. So Sean was my boss um, at the RNC. You know, been to my house, know Sean very well. And I am hard on him. He's got great kids and everybody has good quality. This is an important part of this book is that I'm trying to create three-dimensional characters, right? Like where you under where we learn about these people as humans, right? Because it's easy to be like, oh, they're just evil. They're evil, evil, evil. 
Sean isn't evil. He's just pathetic, right? And and yeah. and that's it. And he likes it's the, it's the banality of evil. Yeah. They called him Sean Sphincter in college. It was the nickname oh, on campus. Geez. He got mocked as a kid, and he got mocked in the in when he was growing up as a Republican operative. He was not one of the people who were on the rise. He was not going to be on the short list for press secretary if any other Republican nominee had won that nomination. Far from it. But when I was there working for him at the RNC. What he cared about most was not issues, of course, but it wasn't even the game. It was like, I'll be a couturement. It was like, I have this job now. I'm the communications director of the RNC. So now I can do favors for people. And I get invited to meetings with the, you know, Jeff Zucker. And I get to go, you know, sit next to Reince, uh, you know, when he talks to important senators and congressmen. And that was all he wanted to do. It was left to the rest of us to actually do the work on the campaign. Sad little man. And so it's like, would it have been surprising that a guy like that would have taken a job where he's on TV every day and where Saturday Night Live is making fun of him? He loved that Saturday Night Live was making fun of him. He loved that he got to wear a green blouse on Dancing with the Stars, right? Like, this was it. And this is not to say, this is just one more thing I want to say. This is not to say these people have no beliefs, right? And I think that's important when you think about the three, you know, thinking of these as three-dimensional humans. On balance, Sean Spicer is probably whatever, pro-life and thinks government should be smaller, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just that that stuff wasn't the main driver, right? Like the main of, of, of his career ambition. The main driver was all of the recognition, being able to thumb his nose at, at the people who'd made fun of him. Okay, so given all of this, though, and let's put this in the context of today, then how do you explain the kinds of people that we saw at the January 6th committee last week. I mean, the vast majority of Trumpists are keeping their heads down. They don't want to, you know, leave the tribe. They don't want to, you know, be out there on the island. But you had the Justice Department officials last week willing to break with Trump. Cassidy Hutchinson, who is clearly part of this world, you know, not a famous person, somebody who very embedded in Republican politics, works in the White House, and apparently she is going to testify today. So w- what makes them different? Why, what is the the differentiation between those people that you describe in this book and frankly, people like you yep. and and others who have said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out. Just, I, I can't, I can't do it. Well, I don't know. Cassidy what's what's the difference? What's, what's the gene? Yeah. I don't know Cassidy Hutchison. I'm very interested right. to see her testimony right. today. And I think that regardless of what it is, it's brave, a very brave of her on a personal level. I think her personal security is going to be at risk. And obviously you get it, you know, it's tough just to be the person that steps out of the bubble and says, I don't actually care about this game anymore. And I don't care if I'm going to lose friends right. over it. That's very hard. And so anyway, I give her a lot of credit. Uh, what, and so I would love to, maybe I can do an afterword about her. She has a very, yeah, she yeah, has right. a very great yeah. testimony. It's dangerous to speculate. Yeah, I did interview Alyssa Farah, and I think that there's probably a lot of similarities. And, and Alyssa, for people who don't know, was a communication, Remind director, us who she yeah, is. Was communications director for Donald Trump. She was uh, Mark Meadows' press secretary. She secretly, uh, she revealed to me, I think for the first time, uh, did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, she didn't tell anybody about it while she was working for Mark Meadows. She thought he was horrible for all the obvious reasons. Didn't go to the White House, turned down the first request, then gets called by Pence, starts to slowly justify it. She finds, she starts to rationalize it. She's like, you know, they need people like me. That's not going to be me in there. It's going to be somebody dumb like Kaylee or it's going to be some racist or whatever, right? You know, and and so you start to justify it. Not wrong, right? Um, And then you get promoted and you get promoted again. 
And then all of a sudden, Mark Meadows, her old boss, gets the chief of staff job and is calling her and saying, Alyssa, uh, you know, I need you at the White House. I need you at the White We need somebody competent here. And well, I don't want to give away the whole story, but, but she you know, decides to do it. It was a close call. Gets in there, is Donald Trump's communications director. I, I find this, <laughs> again, I do not agree with any of these justifications, but I'm just trying to get people to understand her mindset. You know, she's like, all the reasons why you justify it get reinforced every day. She's like, this is insane. It's madness in here. It's chaos. I'm the only one, you know, she's like, I saved stars and stripes <laughs> because I told Trump to tweet yeah. it, right? All these little things happen. And so, you know, then you get to after the election and essentially what happens during the stop the steal is this story that she had told herself, which is I needed here to try to nudge things the right direction. And, you know, it's really probably good for me, right? Like there's also a career element to it. The, that story I, like wasn't operative anymore. You know, she was like, I, I'm not making any difference. This is madness, you know, that is happening. And, and, and she started thinking about a different story in her head, which is I'm about to get married. I'm going to have kids. What are they going to think about me? You know, and, 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 you know, that desire, you know, to be seen as a person who does the right thing ended up overwhelming all the other rationalizations that got her there. Um, I, but, you, but you're also kind of tough I on am her. tough on her, yeah. But I think that is yeah. that is what's happening with Cassidy. And and so, I, you know, again, so a lot of this was obvious. I, I think that, of course, you know, we can wrap everybody's knuckles and say, you should have known this in 2015, uh, Alyssa, or you should have known this in 2008, Tim. And that's true, like no doubt, true. But but if but I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do we nudge these other people along? I think that I think Alyssa's story is the closest to an answer. Well, see, I mean, read your book, um, I, you know, which I of course adds to my cynicism about some of of, of this. Course. Some of these people broke with Trump after they realized there was no future, yeah. or at least they thought there was no future. So you know, for example, I look, I admire the the DOJ officials. I please don't don't misunderstand me here, but. You know, as, as a couple of them made the, the point, if they got fired, basically it meant, you know, moving up their retirement by 17 days. I mean, their bags were packed. They were ready to leave. I wonder how many of these characters would um, react if they had another four years, if yeah. they knew that they had, they, you know, that uh, that there was a different career path. Because I'm thinking about who will populate the you know, Trump 2.0 White House. Where will he draw people? I mean, I, you know, every once in a while, I have this moment of irrational exuberance. I think, well, you know, no decent person would want to work in the second Trump administration. But as you point out, you know, Washington is filled with people who will make accommodations, right? Uh, yeah, think I there's so. no I, uh, I'm just going to throw myself on the mercy of the court on this one. Hopefully, if you've already listened to 41 minutes of this podcast, you're buying the book already or, you're, or you've already decided one or the other. Because yeah, uh, Nicole asked me this question yesterday uh, on TV, and I was like, homina, homina, uh, the Rusty Bowers question. There isn't an answer to this. I mean, I, I, there, I don't have one. Hopefully someone else does. But the reality, here's the, here's the, the truth, um, uh, which is not a glimmer of hope. It's just reality. Anyone who still sees themselves as, as wanting to have their career or their reputation tied to getting affirmed by the voters or the viewers in the case of media people, um, they're not going to act any different next time. And that's the, that's the insight from the book. And, and that I don't, I don't offer a, a hope on that front because the reason that Alyssa got out and the other characters who, who did get out, they all were able to kind of, for various different reasons, able to say to themselves, I actually don't need these fucking people anymore. <laughs> I don't need this game anymore. 
And you know, right. I think that's true of Jeff Blake, and you know, uh, you know, we could go on and on. And so, as long as these guys feel like they need the voters, because it's bottom up, circling back to uh, the beginning of our conversation, they're going to keep using all these same damn rationalizations that I laid out in this book. And I, I just, I just think that's the sad answer to that to that question. So you know, I'm not going to get to everything I want to get to, but you know, people ought to go out and read the book. And, and you know, we talked about you know how you were hard on on yourself, and you know this morning you've already done some cable shows where you you explain on CNN, I'm gay, I'm married, I work for people who are against gay marriage. How did I justify that? And you go into this, and this is part of this this game, uh, this this bifurcation of of your mind. And, you know, I would strongly urge people to watch that and to read that. Okay, we have like 30 seconds left. I just have to mention, so we had this terrible tragedy down in San Antonio with with migrants who died in a a tractor trailer. And the first reaction of the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, was to say, this was Biden's fault. You you tweeted about that this morning. Yeah, it's sick. And I'm glad, I just, we have to mention it. 50 people, and this is just a human... Tragedy. Human beings. I just, I, it's, yeah. It boggles the mind thinking about them dying inside the back of the, the truck. And, 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 you know, so firstly, on just the factual side of it, I mean, it's just like, it doesn't even make sense. It's Newspeak. It's like Greg Abbott tweeting, like, Biden's open borders policy led to this. It's like, well, I mean, actually, if we had an open borders policy, people wouldn't be jammed in the back of a truck, you know? Um, so, like, obviously, we don't have an open borders policy. That doesn't even make sense. But two, yeah. just that that is, the the reaction uh, this tie this does tie to this this theme of the book it's like do you think greg abbott even thinks for a minute like what is a way that i can work with the federal government to come up with a humane solution that can that 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 meets border security and the need for security for my communities with uh, dealing with the asylees and people who want to come and 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 live the american dream no, they don't even think about it anymore. They're, they're not even trying to come up with a solution. And, and this is the thing that is so damn frustrating when I look back at all this stuff with the book, which is like the whole point of being in government is, is public service, is getting solutions, is, is, is trying to make the lives of the people that put you there a little bit better. And, and, and that theory. has been just completely removed from the, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm to the right. I'm talking about the right. There's, uh, you know, yeah, about, no. that's been completely removed from the conversation. Like most of these guys, there are a few exceptions, but, but the vast majority of these, of these politicians and, and their staff aren't even thinking about that anymore. When, when a tragedy happens, the first thing that comes to their head is how can I make the other side Point. look bad with this? Right. You know, how can I score points? How can I score yeah. points on Twitter? Win this little news cycle. And so, you know, there's been a little bit of that forever, but, but it is on steroids now and it is out of control. And until we get public servants again, that actually start to care about impact on, on voters, like all this stuff is going to keep happening, no matter what, whether Donald Trump goes to jail or dies or disappears or gets defeated by Ron DeSantis. Agreed. The book is Why We Did It by Tim Miller. It is out today. Tim, thank you so much. I I have to say thank you to you, um, obviously, for having me on every Friday, help me work through all this, and to Sarah and JVL and the listeners. Honestly, I had people not supported our effort here. I would not have written this, and I don't know what I'd be doing with my life, actually. And so I'm just, I'm eternally grateful to you and our colleagues and the people that are, are Bulwark listeners um, for making this happen. And so I owe you all one. 
And, you know, if you don't want me to send you a cookie bouquet or a book plate or uh, whatever, (laughs) um, my DMs are open. And I'm just very grateful to everybody. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.